0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Actually, verses 1 and 2, I want to read both of those, but our our text today will be mainly verse 2. Uh, For those of you that may be visiting or just been coming the past couple weeks, are joining with us uh, this, this Sunday, so glad you're here just to catch you up on where we've been been in a series on spiritual maturity, that is what it means to grow in Christ. We've been looking at what that is. We've been looking also for the past few weeks on what that does uh, to people who are growing in Christ, the the character that develops from that, the fruit of the Spirit, love specifically. Now we're going to move into the part of the series where we look at, and perhaps some of you have been asking all of these weeks, how do we get it? How do we begin to grow? How can we posture ourselves uh, to grow in Christ? Some of that, that, that gritty stuff that perhaps you have been asking, I want to get into that this week and look at some of those questions for the next few weeks in the remainder of our, uh, our sermon series. And We're going to start at a very crucial juncture here in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. I'm just going to read, uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and then we... Uh, we'll finish in verse 2, and then we'll just get started. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And here's our text. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful this morning that when we come and we gather around you, we don't have to gather around simply one man's opinions or good advice, but we can gather around your spoken word. God, I recall the words that Paul himself prayed, that Paul himself spoke to the Corinthian church that I I now pray right now, that my, my adequacy is not in myself today to make you known, but my adequacy is in Christ. And I thank you that we have such a hope that we can be very bold, as Paul would say, to come into your presence to learn about you that in relation to that, we don't need to uh, come with cunning, we don't need to tamper with God's word, but that we can simply appeal to one another's conscience. We can open, as Paul says, open up your word and see what is there and that the Holy Spirit would cause a light to shine into our hearts revealing the glory of Christ in God. And so we're praying right now collectively together that as we open up your inspired word, Holy Spirit, you would open up our hearts to receive it in a transforming way. We pray that that would start, first of all, with our minds. We pray that you would change our minds to match the mind of heaven, and that our thoughts would match the thoughts of the living God. We pray that you would do that in us. We welcome you to change us. We welcome you to transform us. We welcome you to conform us to the image of our beloved King, in Jesus' name, amen amen my uh my second child jude just turned one a few days ago yeah awesome i am told that that is the marker i don't know who came up with this rule that you you change you transition from being a baby to being a toddler I've been on a mission to figure out what it is that changes you from being a baby to a toddler, and I've been told many things. Some people say, well, it's simply just when you turn one. You kind of transition into toddler. Other people say, well, you have to toddle. Well, once you start to toddle, whatever that means, you move from being a baby to a toddler. Now, there's different descriptions of what that looks like, but everyone seems to have this basic understanding, so I'm told, that there is a clear Change or transition could happen earlier in the kid's life, it could happen later, but there must come a change where a kid becomes, uh, moves from being a baby to a toddler. If you grow up and you uh, hit your four-year mark, you're four years old and you're still not crawling, we would assume, okay, maybe there's something uh, that we should be addressing but in every parent's mind, in our minds, we're looking for those changes. Brianna and I just looking at our kid and just having fun. Not rushing anything, you know, just enjoying our kids, but we're looking for those, those delineating marks. Like, oh my gosh, he's, he's learning new words and oh, he's biting me now. That's different. And you know, oh, now he's, he's, he's propping himself up on the counter and now, oh, they're walking. We did that with Abby and it's just so fun. Our kid is growing. Our kid is developing. Our kid is, is, is uh, moving from stage to stage, we expect that, and we rejoice in stuff like that. But when it comes to our spirituality, we can sometimes uh, not not consider growth to be a normal part of the Christian life. And there was a uh, throughout the years, I've been asking questions of friends uh, in our church, outside of our church, and other churches all over the place, just at random things. Uh, pertaining to spiritual growth, just to get a sense of what people believe about spiritual growth, and I've gotten a whole range of answers to that. You know, d- uh, depending on where people are at, but one one thing that I've heard over and over uh, is this assumption that spiritual maturity isn't really something. Uh, this isn't everybody. This is just a, a, a large collection of conversations that I've had. That spiritual maturity is something that you can't really know much about. That you know, I don't. It's it's more about the journey, not really the destination. These are some of the things that I've heard, uh, and you can't really measure something like that. There's no really way to know. All that it matters is that you're just enjoying the process, and uh, that you just have a relationship with God. And who knows what that's supposed to look like? But. The, the, the tone and tenor behind some of these comments lead me to believe that there is no expectancy, and this isn't for everybody, I'm not stamping everybody with this definition, but a large degree, to a large degree, many people, when it comes to their spiritual walk, are simply okay with just, just floating along. In other words, we're okay with just being toddlers for a while, we're, we, we kinda got our foot in the door, so to speak, and we're just okay with kinda straddling the door. As far as growth or maturity or moving forward or some sense of direction, maybe it's not as urgent to everybody as we, uh, we perhaps should, should think of it. And I want us to examine, if that's, if that's kind of our posture, I want us to just examine some of the things that Paul says in these two first verses in Romans chapter 12. And I'm going to break it down into three ways to think about it. Paul speaks about the pursuit of spiritual maturity. He is, he is trying to burden in our hearts this desire to grow, to move from just as uh, I think the author of Hebrews would say, from desiring just milk and moving on to uh, meatier foods, that metaphor of moving on to the deeper things in spirituality, then Paul moves on to the posture Well, if we have the pursuit to grow, then what is the posture we should take to grow? And then he lastly closes on the power for spiritual maturity. Where does our power come from? So I want to talk about those three things as we move through this single text, the pursuit of maturity, the posture of maturity, and the power behind our maturity. And here's what I mean when I speak about the pursuit. Paul immediately starts this chapter on the heels of about 11 chapters of the deepest theology you've ever read in the Bible. This is kind of the, like, if you want to compare some of the things that Paul has written various letters to different churches here and there, Colossians and Corinthians and uh, Ephesians and whatnot, you can almost compare them to different types of writing in our day. You know, he might write some that are more like journalistic, some that are handwritten personal letters. If you were to take the, the letter uh, to the Romans, it would, be a, it would be at the level as if you were maybe asked by the New York Times to write a theological treatise about God. Okay, this is the biggest opportunity that Paul had. It was the one that garnered the greatest uh, uh, viewership or readership. This was absolutely important. So as you're reading Romans, you see just this tight logic, this just this care about vocabulary and words and a... An, and a an incredible treatise, a treatment on what it means to follow Christ. And he starts all the way at the beginning, and he ends all the way at, you know, when Christ comes to return. In other words, in Romans is nearly everything that you could possibly need or, or, or want to understand about what it means to follow Christ and to, uh, to follow God. And he spends 11 chapters digging it up presenting the case, and in chapter 12, he then turns around on a hinge and says, therefore, in light of the story of God in Jesus Christ, in light of Christ's redeeming the world and all of this that has taken place throughout the entire Bible, I now appeal to you, if this is persuasive to you, If this is what you believe, if this is something that you wanted to sign up for, here's the first order of business present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your response. This is your appropriate response. Or, in other words, this is your spiritual act of worship. Paul just laid out the gospel in gritty detail in a lengthy treatise, and as a response to that, he says, if this is persuasive to you, if you believe this, your appropriate response to this is to offer your body as a living sacrifice. If I could just for a moment paraphrase Paul and what he's saying right there, he's, he's saying something of this nature. If you find this believable, if you are persuaded by the gospel, then you are to, when he says present your bodies, he's in other words saying, you ought to offer every." part of you in response to who God is. If this is true, you should offer everything about you, your mind, your body, your soul, your uh, sexuality, your relationships, your finances, everything that touches you, you should give it over to God. If he is truly the king of kings and lord of lords that he claims to be, as I have been arguing for, your response to a king like that is to give everything about you to him. And here is that pursuit that he is attempting to persuade us to have. You should be pursuing the deep things of God. You should be pursuing spiritual maturity. You should be pursuing growth. You should be be pursuing depth. You should be pursuing the deep end of the pool. You shouldn't be just straddling the the door, so to speak, as a toddler. You should want everything that God has for you. If this is true, if he actually rose from the dead, as he claimed to, and as as, as history evidences, then this should be your response. Everything about you belongs to God. Now, in verse 2, he goes on to describe how we would begin to even start to do something like that. What does it look like to give every part of the human person over to God? Paul immediately starts with the mind. He immediately starts with the mind. Do not be conformed to this world, right? That's the first thing he says. We'll see in the last half of this verse that to be conformed to this world actually takes place in the mind first, and then it affects everything else, but Paul says do not be conformed or do not be forced into the pattern that this world has to offer, Uh, the word that he uses for world, he's not speaking about the planet, uh, as we might refer to it, or necessarily the the population that fills up the world. He's speaking about the age in which we live, the culture, the society, uh, all of those things that come together, the pattern, the common way of thinking about life. He's saying do not be forced into that. Do not be influenced or conformed to the way that the world thinks about life as it is. He's assuming right now that everybody actually is that way. Right? He's even assuming that if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, you've decided, I'm I'm gonna follow Christ, that there are still parts of you that are influenced to uh, some degree, maybe more for some than others, but to some degree we are influenced by the world in which we live. We're influenced by the culture in which we live, by the common way of viewing things. Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Now, notice Paul doesn't say, remove yourself from the world. He doesn't say, in order to do that, just be a hermit, you know, just build yourself a, you know, a shelter in the hills of Alaska and don't talk to anybody. That is the best way, you know, to protect yourself from the world. He doesn't say that. In fact, Jesus would say, I do not ask you, Father, to remove them from the world I ask that you would sanctify them. I would ask that you transform them, that you, you, uh, you redeem them, that you change them as they are living out their faith in the world. Paul likewise doesn't, doesn't tell us to remove ourselves from the world, but he says, do not be conformed to the way that the world commonly thinks about things. And parts of us are influenced to some degree by things in culture and in our world. Now, if you were to back up all the way to the beginning of Romans, chapter one, you would see in Paul's treatment of the gospel, of the story of God, that the problem belying everything that humanity has to deal with, you know, we use terms like sin and stuff like that, all correct terms, he breaks it down even more. He says the problem behind every, uh, the the excuse me, the crux behind every major human problem, even small human problems in the world today, is a failure to think rightly. He says in Romans chapter one, verse 21, and I'll just read that section for you. Romans chapter 1 verse 21, he says, for although they knew God, right? He's explaining the, problem in, the problems in the world today, that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory or the worship of God for images of mortal man. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 says that our main problem, the biggest problem facing humanity, is a failure to think rightly. It's futile thinking, as Paul says. Feudal means it does not function as it was designed to. We were designed to think well about life, about things, about God. We do not think as we are supposed to think, our minds are not thinking in the way that they were created to. Now funny thing is, is that this word "feudal," feudal thinking actually pops up in a few other places in the Bible and they all have to do with some form of idolatry. The biblical authors connect a failure to think rightly with idolatry, in fact, Paul himself does in Romans chapter one, it's all about idolatry. And so it's tied together, now, the modern mind has a problem with anything, maybe that smacks of idols. Perhaps you're hearing, oh great, you're gonna talk about idols. And maybe what's, what's coming to your mind right now is this image of you know, uh, carved statues and like golden images that maybe you've read from the Old Testament, and you're like, are you really telling me that we shouldn't be bowing down before statues? Who does that anymore? So the modern mind, you might hear, idols or idolatry and shut off because we don't really do that anymore. Maybe there's a couple people still in Santa Barbara that do that, but for the vast majority of us, we don't bow down to graven images. And so perhaps you're saying, oh, this doesn't make any sense. But I want you just for a moment to examine what those idols stood for in the Old Testament to begin with. God wasn't angry at carving images out of stuff. You know, the temple was filled with carved things, Let's just take, for example, in Exodus, when uh, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, that story that some of you are, are familiar with, and he's gone for a month, and Aaron, at the behest of the people, then, then creates a golden image, a golden image, and the people begin to worship at it. Now, if you read that story, you find some of the motivations behind building an idol, and they're things like, Moses isn't back yet, we don't know where God is, who's going to lead us into the promised land? If, if they're not here, and so they build a replacement. If you look at every single instance of idols, even the literal idols, the statues and the, the graven images in the Old Testament, you see behind the actual thing a motivation that is not too far from some of our motivations today. They're usually things like I, I, I am insecure, and I don't hear God or see God, so I'm gonna create something to replace him something that is a little more tangible. Or I, I need comfort in this, this really difficult time and I don't see God, I don't hear God, I don't feel God or sense God, so I'm gonna turn to this, right? And in every case of an idol being crafted or built with human hands in the Old Testament, there's this underlying motive that God is not doing what he should be doing, so I'm gonna look to something else. Tim Keller once put uh, idolatry in this Uh, very simple way. An idol isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's often actually good things, right? It's good things, however, that we turn into ultimate things. It's taking a good thing in your life and replacing God as the ultimate thing in your life. And if you think about that, idolatry is actually closer to the human heart today than maybe we are aware of. It could be any good thing in your life that you attach your hopes and dreams to, could be your career. Maybe everything that you want in life is attached to your ability to uh, do your career well. And you devote all of your attention to career, you go to school, you, you uh, sacrifice time with your family, your children, your spouse, in order to be good at your career. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe if you don't have a particular relationship or a romantic relationship, your life crumbles under the burden of that. Maybe it's uh, your marriage. Maybe it's a sense of family. Maybe uh, you feel uh, a certain pressure from your family to be successful and to make them proud, and everything about your life is built on the altar of your family. Maybe it's money. Maybe if if you were just in a different tax bracket, things would be okay. Uh, maybe it's a sense of security. And the list goes on and on and on. All good things. Career, relationships, marriage, family, money. The list goes on. These are good things. But the moment we turn to those good things and try to find in them what only God can provide and supply to us, we have created a bona fide idol. And John Calvin once said, the, the human heart is an idol factory. It can make idols out of pretty much Anything. The crazy thing is, as soon as you begin to pursue these false gods, these idols that you have created, that pursuit of them can actually destroy you. And just look at things in the past. Perhaps you have looked at your children as idols. Maybe for whatever reason, you know, your life didn't pan out, and so you're looking now at your children. You're living vicariously through your children. And so you pressure them in school. You pressure them to be successful. You pressure them to do all of the right things. You judge them when they don't. You condemn them when they fail. And at a certain point, you know, maybe you started as a the proverbial helicopter parent, but at some point, when they're of age, they push you away. All of a sudden, the very thing that you had your heart wrapped into is the very thing that is destroyed by what? Idolatry. You've been serving a false god, and, a, and, and the pursuit of false gods can actually destroy you. The, funny, the thing is, gods, false gods, idols, the things that we chase, even though they're good and they're meant to bless, they can never satisfy the deep capacity of the human heart. They actually leave you hungrier than when you started. They leave you disillusioned. They leave you discouraged and wanting more. They can never satisfy. They were never designed to. And yet, how many of us are still convinced that they will? If I just had a little more money, if I just had this particular type of person, if my life looked this way, if my career was a little bit better. They never, ever satisfy, and yet we're convinced that they will. That's futile thinking. Paul's saying, your, your mind isn't thinking the way that it was designed to. Only God can satisfy. And in this way, Paul is trying to give us a pursuit of better things. He's all, there's a better way. There's a better way. And then he turns and he gives us the posture. If this makes sense to you, in other words, it's, it's as if Paul is saying, if this makes sense to you, then posture yourself for something differently. And he goes on to say, the way that you do this is by the renewal of your mind, the deepest, one of the deepest parts of who you are. The mind has to do with your thoughts, right? Well, I think most of us would know that. It has to do with the things that we think, and thoughts are incredibly powerful. They are incredibly powerful, and our thoughts determine just about everything that we do. Now, you may think that you're doing something spontaneously, but I'll bet most of the things that you do, even the spontaneous things, are attached to things that you believe and think. And sure, maybe one or two things on occasion are just random. You wake up at 2 a.m. and you want like salted caramel macchiato ice cream or something. That might not be attached to this overarching idea. But generally speaking, most of the things that we do Most of the the values that we have, most of the ways that we position ourselves in life are tied to things that we believe and think. Now, thoughts can be spontaneous, but a lot of our thoughts, a lot of what Paul seems to be getting at is something far deeper than that, far deeper than just spontaneous thoughts. Think of it this way, ideas. When we speak about the mind, we're also speaking about the ideas that we have. All of you have ideas about life. Ideas are really just assumptions about reality. Ideas are simply assumptions, ways of viewing the world that you believe, and we all have them, and they are incredibly powerful. Powerful. They determine every decision that you make, the direction of your life, how you treat other people, how you treat yourself, how you view yourself, how you view God. Everything comes from our ideas about reality and they can be incredibly powerful and even dangerous. The Christian philosopher R.C. Sproul once told a story of when he was in college studying philosophy uh, at a university, he ran into this janitor, an older janitor, and he was, uh, you know, got into conversation with a janitor as he was mopping the floors, and the janitor began to sp- uh, found out that he was studying philosophy, and then just began ripping off all these philosophers' names, and all of their concepts and ideas, and sprawl was taken aback, and he was like, whoa, you he started to realize, this guy knows more about philosophy than me, he's a janitor, he began to ask and, uh, and inquire, and found out that he was actually uh, he had a PhD. in philosophy. And as he began to probe, he, realized, he discovered that this janitor was in the position that he was, because uh, once upon a time, he was a doctor of philosophy, a professor of philosophy in his native Germany. And this was during the time that Hitler rose to power, and one of the first things that Hitler did during his rise to power was to purge the empire of anybody who thought thoughts or thought for themselves or spread ideas because, Hitler knew, ideas are dangerous. Specifically, they're dangerous to me. I have a plan and I don't want anybody to think for themselves. I don't want anyone to think good thoughts for themselves. And so he purged professors, uh, in that line of work that had, had to do with thoughts and the mind executed almost his entire family and the, uh, the uh, doctor of philosophy ended up escaping Germany with his daughter, wound up in the United States and thought, I, you know, this philosophy and thinking has cost me almost everything that I have and he started to work at a school um, doing janitorial work and he was in this conversation with Sproll, and Sproul had this illuminating thought, while well, ideas are extremely powerful. They're extremely powerful. And if you look at the way we live our life, you might not even be able to mention any of these names, but so much of what you do and believe has been formed by thinkers before you. Whether it's Plato, or Aristotle, or Augustine, or Aquinas, or, Discar- uh, 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 excuse me, Locke, or Hume, or Kant, or Nietzsche, or Darwin, or Freud. So much of what we believe, so much of maybe what we don't believe, but we are a part of and affected by, has come from people who think. Now, it's not even just big-time thought people, but it's even, even little thought people, like my daughter, Abby. Everybody has ideas, and our ideas affect, oursel- uh, affect us, and they affect other people. Abby has been on this trip where she... She'll wanna share something, but she won't because uh, they're only for girls. So it could be anything, it could be Play-Doh, it could be using her new scooter that her mom got her. She'll come up to me and she'll almost taunt me. She'll be like, Dad, I want you to use my scooter, but you can't because you're a boy. (laughs) But then she'll always follow it up with this. She'll say, but when you grow up and you become a girl, then I'll let you use my scooter. And this comes up with almost everything. Dad, come play with Plato. Okay, Abby. Oh, actually, you're a boy. <laughs> but when you become a girl, when you grow up, and it'll just pop up in these random conversations. And for her, it's, it's not even a question. It's an assumption that she has going into things. Dad is going to grow up, and when Dad grows up, he's going to become a girl. Because whenever you grow up, that's what you become. <laughs> and it affects my family. I can't. Ride the scooter. (laughs) All of our ideas have implications. They shape who we are, the outcome of our lives. They affect people around us, whether for the better or for the worse. And what Paul is simply saying here is everyone's got them. Everyone has ideas. Everyone has thoughts. You can't live without thinking. The question is, are your assumptions about life being grounded in what is true and what is good? The psalmist would say in Psalm 51, verse 6, Behold, God desires truth in the innermost being. And in the deepest hidden part, in the heart, he desires to make me know his wisdom. He doesn't just want me to know intellectual stuff in my mind. He wants my heart to bubble up with truth and wisdom from on high. And what Paul would later say in the verse that we're in, you must be renewed in your mind. In other words, to renew the mind means allowing God's truth to then shape and form my ideas so that I think about life the way that God thinks about life. No longer asking questions through the lens of myself, but starting with who is God? And who am I in relation to God? and what does God require of me, and how do I get there, and what is the good, and all of those things. Perhaps you have a hard time hearing claims about absolute truth, that there's this one truth out there, and God has it, right? That's a hard thing for people in our age to maybe wrap their heads around, and I understand a lot of people claim that kind of stuff, and they end up being wrong, or they end up using it to hurt other people, and perhaps you would say, Something that's very common in our day, you know, everyone comes up with their own truth. No one has a handle on truth. Your job is to just discover the truth for yourself. Or perhaps you've said something along this line, you know, when someone said something that you disagreed with, well, what's true for you isn't true for me. And so you're believing something maybe that that is very common in our day, that no one really has the handle on truth. So how can you claim that one person does, that there's this one God out there that has the handle on truth? I'd like to ask you to bear in mind the implications of that. That if no one really has the truth, if it's just a matter of subjective relativism, that we're just to discover the truth on our own, then if we're to follow that to its logical conclusion, you can't tell anybody else how to live. But we do that, don't we? Anytime you say you ought to, or this should happen, or that's unfair, or we must, or this should. Anytime we use language like that, we are showing that we really believe in the existence of a truth or an objective standard that transcends humanity, that transcends just my personal preference. And isn't that truly what we deeply want? To know that there's something outside of just Chris Lazo, outside of just yourself that governs the world. The Bible offers that. It actually says, if you look through the lens of God at the world and at life, here's the explanation you get. We have been made in the image of God. We've been made to reflect his glory. We've been given a sense, an intuitive sense of right and wrong. That's why you can make decisions based on right and wrong. That's why you have an intuitive sense that genocide is evil, That's why you have an intuitive sense that certain injustices are wrong. It's because Paul says in Romans chapter two that God's law has been imprinted on your heart. You know these things by nature. The problem with humanity is that knowing those things, and this is what Paul goes on to say, we've turned from them. We've said, you know the right thing, God. You've made yourself evident, but I refuse to follow you. I'm gonna figure things out on my own. We turn from him, And we do that first in our thinking, in our thoughts, and out of that flow our actions. And at the end of chapter one in the book of Romans, in one of the most heartbreaking statements, three times that we hear Paul say this, God's response to people that didn't want anything to do with him was to simply say, have it your way. Jesus says, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, one of the greatest forms of prayer is to say, "God, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven." C.S. Lewis once said that the worst thing that God could say to us in response to our sin is, "Let your will be done." And in Romans chapter one, God just does just that. Hey, if you don't want, if you don't want me, I'm not going to force your hand." <clears throat> Lastly. Paul then moves, not just to the posture we should have, or the desire, the pursuit of what we should have, but he says, you know, it's actually impossible because the problem is in your mind. You just don't think rightly about God. And if you don't think rightly about God, you can't think rightly about yourself or anyone else. The power lies outside of the human mind. The power lies outside of yourself. It lies in God and the beauty of the gospel is that there is a wisdom outside of ourselves that is able to transform the way that we think. Paul would say in another letter, 1 Corinthians chapter one, he said, there's something called God's wisdom, God's way of thinking. And he would go on to say that it's actually Christ himself that is God's power and God's wisdom. He would say, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Christ is God's power and Christ is God's transforming wisdom. And we can know him as we put our trust in him. The Holy Spirit then begins to do a renovation in our hearts and our minds, changing the way that we think. And the work is so thorough that Paul is able to say later, we have the mind of Christ. We're not just downloading intellectual knowledge. It's not like we're going into a classroom learning stuff about Jesus. The Holy Spirit invades our heart and gives us a new way to think about things. We are getting nothing less than a renovation of the human mind. He transforms the way that we view life. And then Paul comes along and says, and this is his whole point in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, now that you have a transformed mind, I want you to exercise that transformed mind. The wording that he uses for the renewal of the mind actually has this continual sense. It means you're not just being renewed once, you are in this life constantly renewing the way that you think. How? He goes on to say in another book, Colossians chapter three, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Verse two, he would go on to say, set your minds on things that are above. Be obsessed with heavenly things. He's not saying, don't, don't, don't care about the world. Don't care about your job. Don't care about, you know, physical, material things. He's not saying that. Let's not go back to that again, like we're supposed to disappear from the world and, you know, just occupy a treehouse for the rest of our lives. He's saying, I want you to be in the world, but I want your mind to be driven by heaven. I want your mind to be driven by the kingdom of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. To the Corinthian church, he would put it in a different way. He said, now we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. Paul continually, over and over, seems to be saying the way that your mind is renewed is by getting a satisfying, eternal, nonstop, continual glimpse of Jesus Christ in such a way that you are changed from the inside out. How is the human mind renewed? It's it's renewed by looking and beholding Jesus. Some of you say, well, how do you do that? Because, you know, I don't see his physical... Countenance. <laughs> well, let me quote Jesus for you for a second. On the road to Emmaus, after Jesus rose from the dead, in Luke chapter 24, his disciples were kind of walking along the road to Emmaus, talking about how the tomb was empty, and they were just baffled. They were like, how can this be? Oh, my gosh. Jesus kind of just sneaks in incognito. They don't recognize him, and he's like, hey. What's been going, you know? What's happening around Jerusalem these days? What I miss? <laughs> They're like, "Are you silly? Have you not heard all of the events that have happened?" And they begin telling the story and their disappointment that our Messiah died. And Jesus rebukes them, says, "You foolish, slow, uh, slow of heart, you miss the whole thing." And then it says in verse twenty-seven, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. That, that means that was a Jewish way of referring to what we call the Old Testament. Beginning with the Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, the whole Bible from beginning to end is about Jesus in one way or another. They still didn't get it. They're walking around. They sh- they start eating at a table in verse 30. It says when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Just kidding! (laughs) And they said to each other, listen to this, this is what I want in my own life. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? What are they describing? They're describing not just an intellectual or uh, dutiful reading of the New Testament, not a chore, not a reading of the uh, Bible that is, is surfaced, but uh, they, they read the scriptures and the Holy Spirit illumined in their hearts in such a way that Christ appeared in, his, in, in deep revelation. They saw Him in a way that transformed the way they thought about everything and it changed them right there. How do you renew your mind? Our minds are renewed when we search the scriptures in order to find Jesus Christ. Our minds are renewed in Christ, and we get the deepest glimpse of Christ as we search the scriptures. Paul goes on to say at the end of our chapter, when you do this, when your mind is renewed, you will be able to test and discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You won't have to ask or figure out or doubt, what is God's plan for me in this life? Your mind will simply begin to think that way as you are being shaped by the life and work of God. Death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna end right there. If this is something that you want for your life, you would say, I want, my, I want my deepest, innermost being to be transformed by God. I just want to issue you this simple challenge. Paul seems to suggest, and Jesus, that our thinking is is the most deeply transformed when we encounter Christ in the word of God. So here's my challenge to you. Whether you're a Christian, or whether you are, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you don't believe, maybe you don't know what you believe, you're just here, curious. For all of you represented, I just wanna challenge you to try this. This week, open up the Bible. Open up to a gospel. You could start with a a short one. Open up to the Gospel of Mark and just begin to read it. Don't read it with your critical questions. You know, save those for later. God cares. But read it with a particular objective. Don't read it with, you know, like trying to uncover every problem of the earth, your own problem. Read it with the intent, I want to encounter Jesus And this is a story of the historical... I want to know him. Read with a specific goal to observe Jesus. And keep in mind what Paul would say so often. The natural mind does not have the ability to ascertain spiritual things. We need the Holy Spirit to illumine us to understand in a saving way. So as you're sitting down, open to the Gospel of Mark or Matthew, if you want a, a more robust uh, treatment of the life of Jesus, and say, Lord, I don't, I don't have all the questions. I've got my own doubts. My life is falling apart. I don't know what to do or what to do, but I believe that, my, that everything in my life should, rev- I, I believe that everything comes to its conclusion in Jesus and I don't, know even the, I don't even know how to do this, but with this I know, you're in here, man, and I want to find you, so Holy Spirit, help me understand. Help me encounter the living presence of Jesus. Meet me in my room right now, and just begin to read until your eyes are opened. Begin to read until your heart is changed. Begin to read until your heart burns within you as you are on the road, until you're able to say, Jesus himself is in the room opening my eyes to the scriptures. He will do this for you. He's been doing it for centuries to believers who have opened up the scriptures with that intent. I got two more things. That's for everybody, believer and the curious alike. This is just for believers. If you want to get a little more bold, I want to challenge you to start memorizing scriptures. And not just small verses, That's cool, too. The thing with small verses is when we take them out of context, we can kind of make them mean whatever we want them to mean. Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a great passage. But divorced from its context, it's also divorced from its depth, which has a lot to do with finding joy in suffering. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. and See if this does not radically change your life. Take whole chunks of Scripture and devote yourself to memorizing them at least 10 verses, large portions, because this is what you're doing. You're not just reading the Bible and changing the way you're thinking. You're doing what Jesus would, would say in the Gospel of John. If my words abide in you and you abide in me, ask and you will have anything that you, you, uh, you ask for. It shall be done for you. For I cannot think of a better way for Christ's words to abide in us than to get it deep into the memory of our minds, and not just anything, you know, don't like try to memorize the book of Lamentations, okay? <laughs> and not, not that it's bad, it's all good. But if we're trying to encounter Christ, the whole Bible is about Christ, but there's certain passages that are explicitly about Christ. Just check out Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Colossians 3, 1 through 17 Romans chapter five, verse one through eight. Romans chapter eight, verse uh, nine through 15. Matthew five, Matthew six, Matthew seven, the actual words of Jesus. Psalm 23, 1 Corinthians 13. There are so many chunks that are explicitly about Jesus. What would it do to your life if you were to devote yourself just to memorize a few verses at a time? I'm really awful with with remembering things. It doesn't come by naturally. What What I've been doing for a while is to start on Sunday, Uh, just to give you a practical way if this is something you wanna try. Start on Sunday, devote myself to a verse every two days. Not hard at all, right? So I'm gonna start with uh, Colossians chapter three, uh, and I'll just, you know, on Sunday, I'll read it 10 times, and then I'll try to say it 10 times without reading, and I'll mess up, you know, many times. I'll just keep doing it until it's ingrained in my memory. If then we have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. I'll just say that over and over, all day Sunday. And then, you know, life, life happens, Abby's trying to convince me that I'm gonna grow up into a girl, you know. Uh, I can't do that, but then I'll remember, oh yeah, 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 that verse, if then you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And I'll just begin to do that. On Monday, I'll just reinforce that first verse until it's lodged. Then Tuesday, I'll do the same thing again with verse two. I'll just get it in there. And then on Wednesday, I'll just keep reinforcing verse two. As I'm doing that, I'm reciting the whole thing so that everything just gets reinforced. Very easy way to begin to memorize whole portions of scripture. If you were just to do that, that's just one verse every two days. And I skip Saturday. I don't do anything on Saturday. If you were to do that, super easy, and this is coming from me who has a really hard time remembering stuff, you could memorize 100 verses a year. That's all of Romans chapter eight and maybe then some. What would it do to the way that you think if you memorized some of these huge passages about the work and power of Jesus Christ? If you were to replace the ideas that culture, the devil, maybe yourself is, in, uh, is ingrained with, you would begin to uh, replace those with the word of God, I believe it would change your life. It's changing mine. Lastly, as Jesus says, as the apostle James says, this doesn't do any good if you're not willing to obey what the word says. So we gotta apply this stuff. No matter how outlandish or crazy it seems, no matter how radical, we have to apply these truths. We apply it in a number of ways. If, if there's a word in the, in the scriptures that says something about your identity, well, when the devil lies about your identity, how do you apply the truth? You begin to remind yourself. The devil says, you are, you are a failure, you are uh, shameful, you are dirty, God doesn't want anything to do with you, some, the devil is telling you some of those things, maybe you're telling yourself, and you begin to replace those ideas with God's ideas, my life is hidden with Christ and God, and when he appears, I also will appear with him in glory, shut up, devil, As you begin to do that, you remind yourself of your identity in Christ. We apply the truth of God by worshiping him, by responding. We're going to do that in a couple seconds. Responding to him in light of the truth of scripture. Another way to apply truth is to turn it into prayer. Uh, To use that same example, God, thank you that my life is hidden with Christ in God. Thank you that uh, even though I feel like I'm in the midst of an uncontrollable storm, that I am... I'm not in the storm by myself. I'm actually locked, hidden in the life of God, and you're the one who calms this storm. Thank you that you're able to, to keep the storm at peace. And Lord, my, my heart needs peace. I just pray for the peace that passes. Understand, you pray, you're praying scripture over yourself. Obviously, we apply this, these truths to everyday situations. If we were to read the scriptures, memorize key portions of scriptures, and actually do what it says, I promise you, on the authority of God's word, that your life would change, the first place that it would change would be in your mind. You would be a person living in a crazy city and culture, does not know or love God, you would be living with kingdom power. Not just to be sustained in yourself, but to shine light into dark places. People will see how you think about things and how you act and how you behave and how you treat them, and they will deeply desire to know what you know and what you have. Paul says this must first start in our minds. So as we sing today, I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up. Singing is a very powerful thing because we are moving our lips when maybe our hearts and our minds have not yet caught up to our lips. And you might notice that when you force your body to do something either by lifting your hands, I am going to praise and respond to God in this way. Or kneeling on the carpets, I'm going to, to uh, lie down in a, 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 you know, a, a, a posture of reverence before God, or singing. I don't feel like doing this. I, maybe I don't even I have a hard time believing this, but I'm gonna say it because he's worthy start to notice that the posture of your body begins to affect the posture of your heart. I pray in the name of Jesus that as we step out in faith today and we sing in response to his word, we don't have to live in the futility of our thoughts, there is a wisdom from heaven that has come to change your world. That our response today would be praise, adoration, love and worship to the Holy One of God who does not leave us to the depravity of our own hearts, but has sent a way forward, a way for us to be saved. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus. May your word be done. May your people be transformed. May our hearts and our minds be conformed more to your image than ever before. In Jesus' name.